So this morning, I want to talk to you about fruitless hearts. Fruitless hearts. I have a problem with my edge. So normally when I try and say heart, it doesn't always sound quite right. It might sound like I'm talking about heart. <laughs> but we're talking about the heart. Fruitless hearts. Now, before we look at the passage, um, we need to be clear what we mean by the heart. Uh, I don't mean the physical thing inside your body. No, by the heart, I'm talking about the inner you, so to speak. When the Bible refers to the heart, it talks about the inner you from three different perspectives. Sometimes the Bible, when it's talking about the heart, it uses the word the mind. Or it, so, so it's, the heart is the mind of the person. So this includes your thoughts, uh, your beliefs, your memories, your discernment, your understanding, your conscience, the mind. So when we read in First Kings chapter 3, verse 12, it says this when God spoke to Solomon. He says, Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So the heart is the mind. Uh, the heart is also your affections, and the Puritans often talked about the affections of the heart. Uh, these are your deep longings, your desires, uh, your feelings, uh, your imaginations, and uh, your emotions. So we read, for example, Joshua says this, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. The heart there is melting with fear. But Joshua says, but I follow the Lord, my God, fully. That's in Joshua chapter 14, verse 8. So the heart also can refer, this is the third perspective, to your will. That is the inner person that chooses or determines what actions you take. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19... Uh, the Lord speaking, perhaps through, speaking through Moses, rather than Moses' own words, this is the Lord speaking through Moses, says this, I call heaven and the earth to witness against you, uh, that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. There, it's about the will of the man. So, these are three perspectives. A little intro there. So, that the heart can refer to the mind, the affections, or the will. And these three perspectives are important because they make up the heart. So, when I, throughout, when I talk about the heart this morning and this evening, I'm talking about essentially these three things. We might say the heart is the seat or the executive center of your life. It is your, if you like, the center of your spiritual life, your health and strength. When your heart is healthy, your spiritual life is healthy. And the Bible says that when God created man in the Garden of Eden, he created us with a healthy heart. Adam and Eve were perfect individuals with healthy hearts. And these hearts were capable of loving God and capable of loving one another. But the Bible also tells us that our ancestors Adam and Eve sinned against God in Eden. We might say they became infected with a heart disease, which we call sin. They rejected God and started living for themselves as number one. 
And the consequence of this spiritual infection is that all the descendants of Adam and Eve are born with that spiritual infection. We are born with dead acts. We enter this world not with a heart that is alive, but with a heart that is completely dead. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and transgressions. But there's a problem there, isn't there? Because if we keep living dead, then we'll never have life with God. We are all born cut off from God until we get a new heart. But how can a dead person get a new heart? That's a very important question. Well, we can't do it. You can never live right to get accepted before God. You're dead. Dead people can't do anything. But you see, the good news of Jesus, and this is the good news of Christmas, is that God has decided to give you a new spiritual heart transplant. God has come as a heart surgeon in Jesus. Through the scalpel of the cross, he has come to crack open your chest, remove your dead heart, corroded, corroded by sin and filth, and replace it with his new heart created in Jesus. Christmas, if you like, marks God entering the world and then heading to the cross as he lives a perfect life, heading to the cross, dying for your sins, and through surrendering to him, you can have a new heart. God is amazing, isn't he? Rather than telling dead zombies to change, God creates the change. He makes us Totally brand new creation in Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. It is a second Adam, so to speak. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or a second you for later. You become a new creation. That's what God does. God does what we might say, a second genesis. He breathes life into a dead situation. So in this world, as I look around here, all of us have one or two hearts. Some here have dead hearts. Or we might even say fruitless hearts. And some here have new hearts created in Christ Jesus. But how can I be sure that I have truly received a new heart from God. How do I know that? Well, the Bible tells me, but what is the evidence? Well, we can answer that question by asking another question. How do we normally tell that a physical heart transplant has been successful? How do we tell that? Well, the health improves, I hope, over time. We see changes over time. You can't just sometimes tell it immediately. I mean, you're just trusting the doctor, right? But over time, you should see that your health improving, things becoming better in your life. All of a sudden, you can go around the gym and there's no problem, that sort of thing. Well, in the same way, those who have truly received a new heart in Jesus should produce spiritual fruit that is in keeping with a good heart. Dead hearts remain completely fruitless. New hearts have new fruit. This is why John the Baptist, when he came before the Lord Jesus Christ, ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
so to speak, he said to those he was preaching to, he says, repent and do deeds in keeping with your new situation, with your repentance. So the way we know you have a new heart is to sit to look at the fruits. What are the fruits in your life telling you? So what I want to do today is to help you check whether you have a new heart, whether you've truly surrendered to Jesus. We'll do this by looking at Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the sower, or sometimes it's called the parable of the four soils. Now, you might ask, why do we need to know what we need to know? Because your eternal consequence, eternal future is at stake. It's not a guessing game. There has to be true change in your heart. And even if you think you are convinced that you are already a Christian, you need to know this evidence in front of you so that you can know the dangers that are pressing against your heart. You must make your election sure, as Peter says in his second letter. You can't take your salvation for granted. You must be sure you are convinced. Now, when you call me as a pastor... I set before me one simple task to ensure that what I'm preach, when I'm preaching the gospel, it is clear that it is not sending anyone to hell by that. In other words, the gospel is clear. It is not convoluted. It is not giving false comfort. And I'm thankful that we are now looking at Mark now because the Lord will help me this morning to set out the evidence before you. I want this morning to compare your heart to two hearts that Jesus described. These are dead hearts. I want you to do a negative test. Hopefully by the end of this morning you should be saying, no, my heart is not like that. (laughs) My heart is healthy, right? That's the idea that we are doing. In the evening we'll look again at another fruitless heart and a healthy heart. And you'll be able to say, okay, my heart is not like that, but it is like this one, and praise the Lord. So actually, these sermons are a search. You need to listen to both of them to really do a full heart diagnosis. There are four tests that checks the health of your heart. So that's a long introduction there. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we have been going through this chapter 4. Jesus has taught the parable of the four soil of the sower. And uh, the disciples have come for interpretation. So the parable is taught verse 1 to 9. In verse 10 to 12, they've come for an interpretation. And Jesus now is interpreting this parable from verse 13 to verse 20. So I want to just this morning look at two hearts, as I said, uh, to see what Jesus says about two soils that are in this parable. And there are just two truths I want to share. The first truth this morning I want to share is that hard hearts are fruitless hearts. Hard hearts are fruitless hearts. So Jesus has given that parable in this one line, and then he begins the interpretation of the first soil. Look at verse 13 to verse 15. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 
Here we have a fair soil. Uh, the soil is, uh, is on the roadside or the path. Uh, it is a very hard soil. People have been walking up and down. It's very hard. And the sower sows the seed there. He scatters some seeds there. But the seeds cannot take this soil. Now, when you come to the passage, I'm sure you are asking the first questions I asked, which is, who sows seeds like this? I mean, why would you just scatter it everywhere? And it looks strange, doesn't it? That it's just sowing everywhere and some of it falls on the road. No one does that really in our, in our society. Well, it might help you to know that in Jesus' time, usually the seed was sown first and then the ground ploughed in. That's a very important point to know. That actually would explain why you have different soil. Just keep that interesting fact in your mind. So once the seed is sown first, then the plough comes, sows in the seed. And so in some sense, this seed is being given the same chance that all other seeds are being given. But the ground is too hard when the ploughing comes. It can't Taking is on the roadside. In fact, they shouldn't even be plowing there, you, you might say. It's on the path side. So it's so hard, it can't take things in. And Jesus is saying this soil represents hard hearted people. People who are not willing to hear the good news of Jesus. Now, this soil, in some sense, is a natural state of everyone. All of us in this room, we enter this world with this hard soil. Until God begins to melt our hearts. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 19 says this. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says this. So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles or pagans, the non-believer also walk. He's writing to Christians. How do non-believers walk? In the futility of their mind. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of what? Listen to this, the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So, Paul there just described that all of us enter this world like that. Now, I was handing out flyers this week and I've had some amazing conversations with people. But I've also have had some strange uh, in, in, things I've seen. I was handing out flyers uh, in Alcott Road and, uh, and as soon as I walked into this, uh, that, by this house, uh, actually not far from where Sister Maureen's house is, as soon as I went there, I put the flyer through the door and the man obviously read the flyer and uh, the man came out with the flyer and uh, he was very keen to show, to show me, I guess, that he was not interested in this at all. So he got the flyer and immediately looked where I was and, you know, showing me that he was putting it in the bin. When we look at a man like that, he's hard-hearted, isn't it? Jesus to him is like kryptonite is to Superman. Uh, he doesn't only oppose God, he enjoys opposing God. He, he wants to divide, he wants to make sure that he's not interested in church stuff. Uh, that's not for him. And many people in the world are like that, aren't they? They don't want to set foot in the church. They don't want anything to do about Jesus. They're not interested. They tell you that point blank. 
But not all hard hearts behave like that. Remember, Jesus is speaking among the hard hearts Jesus is mentioning here would be the crowd that are following him. And it is the case for us here that many hard hearts actually attend church. They enter through the foot of the door, but their heart is hard. How is it hard? Well, because they are only here because to them the church is more like a local community club. <coughs> many find sermons boring even if they come in. They, they are like, when is the sermon going to finish? They hear the message and it's just one ear in, one ear out. They are hard hearts. It doesn't take them long to fall asleep, no matter how energetic the speaker is. And I have to say, some, some of us are not as energetic as we should be. But they have no interest in Christ, so it goes in and goes out. They have hard hearts. And it's difficult for people with hard hearts to surrender to Jesus. Why? Because first of all, they have two things working against them. The heart is hard, so the seed is sown, it just bounces right off. The other reason they can't surrender to Jesus is in verse 15. The word of God never stays long enough because Satan comes in and steals it. Look at verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I share the gospel with someone, the good news of church with someone, and they reject it, or whether when I'm preaching and people don't take it in and they're just not interested or give me some funny special expressions, I put that down to many natural reasons. Or if I preach and somebody's asleep, for example, I say, well, they must have had a tired day or whatever it is. So there are many reasons, of course. And some of those reasons are valid, okay? But Jesus doesn't mention those here. He says one of the reasons that people, the word of God not only bounces from them but never stays, is because there's demonic warfare going on. Satan is at work. Even as I'm preaching, Satan is working. Satan is working to steal the word of God from people. That's what Jesus says. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word. Now that might part of some of you. He says, how does Satan steal the word? Well, I think there are three ways Satan does. First of all, Satan steals the word before you even get to hear it. So Satan works very hard to fill your life with meaningless activities so that you have no time to even sit down and listen to the word of God. It makes your life so busy that you can't come to the evening services to hear the word of God preached. It makes the, 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 your, your life so hard that midweek just seems and then start for you to study God's word together. So it's working on you continuously before you even have a chance to hear it. And sometimes Satan slanders the church to the hard-hearted. So I've heard this, like, you know, don't bother going to that church. It's a waste of time. They're all hypocrites down there. They're all walking scandal. Why should you bother going to the carol services, this stuff goes on every year. It's just a waste of space. Satan is working on people and he's stopping them just from here. Sometimes, the second way Satan does it, so he does it before, and he also does it as the word of God is being shared. Did you know Satan is a preacher? Did you know that? As I'm preaching to you, his demons are also preaching in your ears. And they are sowing the opposite message. 
I said to you this morning, God demands you turn from sin, otherwise you remain with a dead heart. If you're not, you will live forever separated from him. Certain whispers to him. I can hear him. He's saying, well, here goes a hellfire sermon again. We've heard this before. Hell, 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 hell. Sin, 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 sin. I said to you, true followers of Jesus are committed to God's true family. They prioritize God's family. The demons come and whisper to you. Don't listen to Shola. You are free to do what you like. He only wants to control you. Oh, as they said nowadays, he only wants your money. So you see how Satan steals the word during, before, and during? But also Satan steals the word after you have heard it. After you hear the sermon, the devil, what he does is, even before you get to Sanderos, even before you get there, what happens is that Satan wants you immediately after the service not to be talking about biblical things. He wants you to be thinking about other worldly matters. Let's have a chat about Brexit, the Christmas number one, or some footy. That's what Satan is interested in. He doesn't want you to say, look, we just heard a sermon about hard hearts. What do you make of that? Satan doesn't want that conversation. Now, of course, in the church, we should have conversations about many things. But be mindful that you're having those conversations. You may be used by Satan to steal the word from a person who really needs their conscience to be steered further. I want to make it clear here, though, is that all of us here are vulnerable to demonic theft. And Jesus here is saying the hard-hearted are especially vulnerable. So Christian and non-Christian, we're all vulnerable to this, and we need to be on guard. But the hard-hearted are especially vulnerable. Because the word of God bounces right off them straight into Satan's mouth. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this should not discourage you from sharing Jesus with people who are hard-hearted around you. Don't let this hard-heartedness discourage you. There's something wrong with next Christmas. I'm now discouraged from putting a flyer in that man's door who just put it in the bin. I should still go to him. I should still reach out to him. This is, Jesus is not saying this to discourage us. Quite the opposite, actually. Jesus wants us to know, by the way, you were hard-hearted once, Right? And Jesus worked on your heart. He made you see his glory. So what Jesus is doing here, he wants you to see that only God can melt hard hearts. And so this truth should encourage you to keep praying for that hard-hearted family member. It is not enough to give your son, your hard-hearted son, a book to read. It's not enough. It's not even enough just to invite them to church. God needs to open their blind eyes so that they can see the glory of Jesus. It is not enough to shout Bible. <laughs> it's not even enough. You shouldn't even do it. So I'll change what I've just been thinking. I'll say this. What your spouse needs is not shouting Bible verses at them. It is not playing Christian music loud enough so they can somehow hear the gospel. Now, what your spouse needs is continuous prayer before God, that God would open their hearts, would melt their hearts to really come to true faith in Jesus. 
God wants to change you through this process of reaching out to them. So be on your knees. Be patient. Ask God to use you in any way He would want you to use, in a loving way. Don't force the gospel on them. In a way in which, well, you know, you know what I mean. Right? And above all, this truth also poses a direct question to all of us here this morning. Is the word of God melting your heart for Jesus? Do you have a desire to follow Jesus? If the answer is no, then you have a hard heart that needs to turn to Jesus. And you must recognize that you are in grave danger. Why do I say that? Well, as I said Sunday evening, the word of God is always doing two things whenever you hear it. It is either melting your heart to hunger for God more, or it is hardening your heart to things of God. And only you know the answer. Is the word of God increasing your hunger to know more, or is it making you hard-hearted? Because if you are hard-hearted, you need to come before God before it's too late. You may cross the Rubicon. You may reach a point of no return. So that's one thing. Hard hearts are fruitless. The second thing I just want to quickly share here is that hard hearts are not just fruitless. Uh, the second truth is that hollow hearts or empty hearts are fruitless hearts. Hollow hearts are fruitless hearts. So Jesus in verse 16 turns uh, to explain the second soil. Look at the second soil in verse 16. Let's read it. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. This is amazing. This soul that this heart is different. The word of God is, so, is preached. The person hears the good news. They are excited about it, about it. And I would say they are not just excited, they are probably in tears about what a sinner they are. They, they see themselves as sinners. But it never lasts. It never lasts. It's all feelings. Look at verse 17. And they have no root in, them, in themselves, but endure for a while. We pause there. We note here that Jesus says they have no root in themselves. In other words, there hasn't not been a true work of the Holy Spirit in them. She has, she has not received a new heart. And what happens is that when people start opposing her, her new interest in Jesus, the process of full surrender to Jesus comes to a halt. So maybe the person has partying friends, you know, friends that like to go for parties. As soon as she says, well... I'm attending church now, and I'm really interested in Jesus. So I can't go to the club on Saturday. I, I, I might go on Tuesday, but I can't go on Saturday because I'm going to be in church, which is fine to learn more about Jesus, right? I can't go to a party on, on, on Saturday because I'm going to be in church. I'm really keen to be going to church. Well, the friends then take it personal, don't they? They say, well, we don't like that. and You're either our friends or you're not. You're either Jesus' friend or you're our friends. And of course, the, the, the young lady has a choice. She faces a choice. Jesus or parting friends. And the pressure builds and builds and builds, and eventually she sticks with her friends. She has allowed the desire 
not to live with pain or to live with, with to live with them um, without friends, right? Stop us from truly surrendering our life to the Lord Jesus. Let's read on verse 17. And they have not rooted themselves, but endure for a while. They show a life for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now I just want to make a point here. When Jesus says they fall away, he does not say it means they stop claiming to be his followers. That's not what the saying means. That, that happens sometimes. I've seen people there. They, they, they have had some impressions of Christ and they, 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 suffering comes or pressure builds up and they stop coming to church. They, they stop truly coming to church. They're just not interested. I think what happens most of the time though is something different. They still come to fellowship. They still attend. But their heart is not in it because they haven't yet reached that position of true surrender. And some of these people still consider themselves followers of Jesus. But the truth is that in their private moments, they know they have no intimate relationship with Jesus. They don't read. They don't pray. They don't weep for their sins. They have no desire to witness to others. But they keep up the outward form of religion. It is all religion. No relationship. Because they haven't been truly converted. What is the difference between a bargain hunter and a smart shopper? Does anyone know what the difference between a bargain hunter and a smart shopper? Well, the bargain hunter doesn't care about what he buys as long as it is very cheap. It's Black Friday, yeah. You go out there, she picks up that. She doesn't really care as long as it's very cheap. But the smart shopper on the other hand, is all about wise purchases. Even if it means she has to pay a little bit of a premium. You see, bargain hunters are, uh, are happy with junk as long as the price is cheap. But smart shoppers go for lasting value. Value for money, don't they? And you know what? A person with a hollow heart or empty heart is what I call a spiritual bargain hunter. He hears that salvation in Jesus is free. And he says, yippee! Right? And he quickly says the sinner's prayer. Because it's what? It's free, right? But saying that prayer never results in true conversion. Why? Because he has not attached any value to Jesus. Right? What matters to him is that Jesus comes free. And so he takes it up. Not expecting to give up anything. And so what happens is that when trouble comes, he has no lasting interest in Jesus. Uh, when he sees trouble, he says, oh, this is not what I signed up for. I mean, or they might even say, Jesus doesn't work. I believe in God, but it doesn't work for me. So they stop attending church, perhaps. Or when they do attend, their heart is not truly in it. And suddenly, they have no, they have declining interest in things of God. Their hearts are hollow, empty, unconverted. Spiritual bargain hunters. But the true follower of Jesus is a smart spiritual shopper. She recognizes the high price of salvation. She can see on the cross there, Jesus hanging there, wounded on the cross for her sin. She knows that right there on the cross is God dying for her and looking at her. 
Right there on the cross is Jesus paying the price that she holds God. A debt that she can never repay. She says that Jesus' death on the cross, not only can it save her from sin, wipe the slate clean, it can secure a glorious eternity for her. A life of never-ending joy with God. A life of the Spirit of God at work in the here and now. But a future, a future, a glorious future beyond our imagination. But she also sees that following Jesus will mean suffering for Jesus. It will cost her in some way. She might lose friends. She might, if she's in a very sinful employment, she might have to give up that employment. If she's in a very sinful relationship, she might have to make some changes about those. She understands the cost. She understands that she can't live for money anymore. She must live for Jesus now if she truly surrenders to him. So she can see the amazing offer and she can see the real cost in her life. But when she compares the real cost in her life to what's on offer, the smart spiritual shopper chooses Jesus, isn't it? Because it is infinitely worth it. It is priceless, as the Barclay Card advert says. And on that basis, she surrenders to Jesus. And so when trouble comes, she has already weighed the cost. Yes, she will get knocked down. But like that Chumbawamba song, I guess she gets up again. And she keeps growing in Jesus. Maybe they have speed bumps on the road, but she's always getting up. The righteous man falls, but he gets up, isn't it? Seventy, seventy, what, what, seventh fold, I guess. He gets knocked down, but he's always up. And, 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 and for her, it's the same. She's, she's righteous in Christ now. She has surrendered to Jesus, and she's trusting him. And she's growing in surrendering to Jesus. And some of you here know something of this. You are not just following Jesus because it is easy. You're not, you're, not, you're not believers because it is easy. Even as you sit here, you feel the cost. Some of you have lost friends. You have strained family relationships. Because you are holding on to Christ. You are carrying that cross for Jesus. Some of you have made hard choices about how you live. And it's costing you because you have said like Horatio Spafford, for me it is Christ, it is Christ now to live. You have taken up the cross. You are a smart spiritual shopper. This is true for some people here. But friends, is it true for you? Is this truth true for you? Do you have a new heart that's growing in surrendering to Jesus? Or is your heart fruitless? Uh, Only you know the answer. Your mom can't tell you the answer. Your brother cannot tell you the answer. Your sister can't tell you the answer. Your spouses cannot tell you the answer. Only you know based on this evidence presented in front of us. And if you have a fruitless heart, then can I encourage you to come before Jesus now? Ask him to give you a new heart. It is worth it having a new heart. Don't stay with a dead heart. Come before him. And if you already have a new heart, you can look at this, you know, that there's two tests, admittedly there's one more to come in the evening, two more to come in the evening, but if you can look at what we've just been discussing, the hard heart, 
You can look at your whole heart and you can say, yes, I struggle, but my heart is not like that. I, I, am, I am growing surrendering to Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And you are persevering in Jesus. Then can I encourage you this evening that you keep on persevering. Keep on focusing on Jesus. Keep on focusing on that glorious future that lies ahead of you. The new heavens, the new earth, when our Lord appears for a second time. As I like to say, keep on believing and stay confident that he who has given you that new heart will keep it for himself until you see him face to face. Amen.